Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Welcome to episode 81 of District of Conservation. Hope you've been enjoying the interviews we've recently had here on the podcast, especially with Katie Pavlich and Art Noglak. Today we are joined by Diana Muller, founder of the DC Project. Diana and her group have been making waves, empowering women to go to Congress and also the state legislatures to talk about the virtues of the Second Amendment and why not all women are monolithic in their thinking when it comes to gun rights. Here's a little bit of Diana's biography for you all. She is a two-time national three-gun champion. Diana is a 22-year veteran of the Tulsa Police Department, serving assignments in narcotics, gangs, street crimes, and patrol. She is a fleet law enforcement firearms instructor, a member of the NRA Law Enforcement Committee, and a subcommittee member of the Department of Interior's Hunting and Shooting Sports Conservation Council. She is also the founder of DC Project. In this interview, you're going to learn about the organization, Diana's background, and why her group is starting to attract a lot of attention. We waded into many interesting discussion topics, and I think you're going to like what she has to say. I was able to learn more about the organization firsthand when I went to their range day for media last summer, and it was a blast. And I've gotten to know a lot of the ladies who are members of the DC Project, and they know their stuff, and they're really awesome. So I think you're going to like what Diana had to say. Here is our conversation with DC Project founder, Diana Muller. Enjoy. Thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. Really excited for you to share what you've been working on recently. Well, thanks for having me. Of course. Why don't you introduce yourself to the listeners? Explain what you do, kind of your background, and how you got around to starting the DC Project. Okay. Uh, my name is Diana Muller. I'm from Tulsa, Oklahoma, but our joke is that we do laundry and taxes in Tulsa because uh, my husband and I are both uh, professional shooters, so we travel the country, sometimes the world, uh, shooting competitively and being brand ambassadors for our uh, many sponsors. So uh, I'm a retired police officer by trade. I did 22 years in the Tulsa Police Department, and my husband is a plastics engineer until he met me, and uh, we decided to embark on a professional shooting career uh, that we're blessed to blessed to have. So the follow-up question to that is how did I become a, uh, you know, a Second Amendment advocate and how did I start the DC project? So it was during one of those trips that we found ourselves on the East Coast for a bookend weekends. So we had just got done competing. It was the NRA World Championship. I actually won. So I, I walked around for like an entire week introducing myself as a world champion and uh, which was very, very irritating to Miss Lena Michalik, who usually gets to do those honors. But uh, it was me, my husband, Ryan, uh, Jerry Michalik and Lena Michalik were uh, out there. And uh, a friend of mine said, do you want to meet your legislature? Because we're, we're our legislator. We were in the D.C. area. 
and we wanted to be tourists. So we took her up on that offer and we met Congressman Steve Russell out of Oklahoma City. And it was a fantastic meeting. But I, you know, when she asked me, I just kind of shrugged my shoulders and I said, sure, I'll meet my congressman because that's what you do when you're in Washington, D.C. But I had absolutely zero uh, ambition, desire, plan to ever do anything what came after that. But when we were sitting in his office, I said, hey, is there something that we should be doing as professional shooters to reach out to the legislators that are making a lot of big decisions uh, on misinformation or no information at all uh, about our country and about our gun rights and things like that? So we started chewing on it then. And, you know, at first I thought it would be professional shooters because we're easy to vet. We're easy to trust that, you know, we're not crazy with guns. And uh, then God kind of took it in a different direction. And uh, I realized that there weren't 50. Well, then it was the women thing. I was like, okay, well, maybe we should just do the girls because girls can speak a little bit stronger about the Second Amendment than uh, because we break that stereotype. And also women were the fastest growing demographic in the firearms community. Uh, so I thought that that's kind of the route I took. And then I was like, okay, well, there's not 50 professional shooting women, one in every state. And I have no standing in California. I have no standing anywhere but in Oklahoma. And I started kind of loosening the reins on what I thought originally was going to be professional shooters reaching out to the legislators. And then we have now, five years later, I have amassed so many amazing women from all over the country that I didn't even know beforehand. So uh, it's been, I definitely feel like it's been a blessing. I didn't even know that, uh, you know, the simple premise of going and meeting your legislator and introducing yourself and talking about a topic could be impactful. Uh, But I have since become a believer. Yeah, and it, has it grown to participants from all 50 states now? Uh, we do not have a North Dakota. Uh, and it seems like there's a couple of more states that um, we don't we don't have a secure lock on. But um, like, like Hawaii is kind of up in the air. We do have a woman that's uh, from Hawaii, and uh, but she kind of goes back and forth from the states. So, um, but there's a there's a handful of states that we don't have yet. But uh, what what's new for 2020 is that we are kind of expanding down to the state and local level. Um, I'm seeing a you know the effectiveness of groups like Moms Demand Action and their red shirts and their organizations and them showing up to hearings, them showing up to uh, protests and things like that. And I'm like, I don't see anybody from our side organizing women, and it has to be women battling women. Um, so I thought, okay, um, what you know, how can we be a color? And then you know, NRA women are, are teal. Woma is teal. There's a lot of teal in the firearms women's industry. So I was like, let's do teal. And um, just start talking about education, not legislation, as being the key to safety. So the the whole teal thing really came to mind because when I um, fast forward to last, well, step back to last fall when I testified in front of the House Judiciary Committee, that was kind of uh, I kind of got that gig because of our work on Capitol Hill, and. Um, 
and I had a bunch of women, I bet 12 women that came with me. And uh, I said, we have to look like the red shirts look. So that's when we really started trying to focus on a color and get a logo that um, spoke something as opposed to just saying the DC project, you know, it says, it says uh, educate and on tie it's basically slashes out legislate and it puts educate uh, in written print right over the top of it. And it's got guns on top and guns on bottom. So we wanted to have uh, a, a, a talking point, a talking piece to our shirts and let people know that uh, there are women out there that don't agree with mom's demand action. How has the reception generally been by lawmakers at the federal level and also the state level when they see the teal shirts from many of your members uh, in the halls of Congress or in different state legislatures? Well, uh, traditionally, you know, we've been going to D.C. for four years now, and we are very much a kind of a professional under the radar type thing. It wasn't until uh, that testimony last September, last October, I guess it was October, first part of October that I testified that we really kind of congealed around teal and are trying to make a push at that color for the firearms industry. So um, they really haven't seen us like they've seen uh, the, the the red shirts. Uh, we're we just dress in professional business clothes and uh, with little name tags, and so we're very much under the radar. They really don't know. Um, they don't see the visual of oh my gosh, here they come, or oh yay, here they come. We don't get that. Um, and then we run in small pack, so four or five people. Uh, we don't try to overwhelm. We don't corner people in elevators. We don't yell. Uh, we, we have had very contentious uh, conversations in certain offices that you would expect, uh, especially that first year. But, you know, when they came, when it comes to year two and year three and, and you go back to Dick Durbin's office, who wasn't very nice to our girls in the first year, uh, it's that's the relationship that we're talking about. That's what we're trying to do with the DP project is actually say, hey, we are human. We're here. We're going to come back and see you. Don't treat us like crap because <laughs> we're going to, you know, we're here. We really want to be a resource for those people who are pro or anti, you know. Uh, it's important for people who aren't familiar with the firearms industry or our culture. It's important for them to meet people that are normal because the mainstream media is so good at portraying us as the problem, as evil, as insensitive, as uh, whatever negative connotation they want to put to, to sway people into thinking that guns and gun owners are dangerous. Yeah, I remember from my early political years, the importance of lobbying members of Congress, not any exchange of money, but petitioning more so and in meeting with them or their staff. Usually it's their staff because they are either busy or they can't take time. Sometimes you do meet with the members. But right. But, uh, yeah, it does help with especially swaying uh, those who are on the opposite side of the fence to kind of reconsider positions. You're not going to get everyone, but it is kind of effective. And is that uh, one of the initiatives the organization covers? Um, and what are some other tactics that DC Project employs to get people to be aware of what you're up to and to kind of counterbalance the Moms Demand Action and other groups like that? Well, if you remember, um, one of the things – it was, I can't remember the year, it may have been 2015-ish, when Hillary was sitting across the table from the coal miner. 
and she had been on a rampage of demonizing coal miners. And when she actually sat across the table from one and spoke to one, I remember that. That spoke to me, and that really kind of influenced how I want uh, the why I wanted to do the DC project is because. Um, I felt it was important for those legislators who were demonizing us to know who we were and to look us look at us in the face and 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 have a conversation. That is the first step in the education process uh, that we offer. Uh, unbeknownst to them is just meeting us is an education in and of itself. But beyond that, you know, we want we don't try to go in and point fingers and demand that they vote this way or they vote that way. It's really, really focused on the relationship and finding out, knowing somebody who's there. If it's a pro 2A um, office, you know, we talk about how we can make pro 2A measures. You know, there's so many anti-gun laws that come on the books and get uh, get sponsored and get voted on. It's just like you know, let's see some, let's see something positive. So, like for example, that's what I've been working on for the past twelve months or so with uh, one of my senior senators is is um, you know getting firearms education back in schools. Uh, we believe at the DC Project, we believe that uh, education is the key to safety, not not legislation. Yeah, and I saw that last year firsthand when you invited media members like me to come out to rural Virginia to do some shooting with some of your advocates, and it was a lot of fun. And I mean, you you don't have to convince me because I'm I'm on your side, but I think something like that for someone who may not entirely be on our side, but maybe at least a little familiar with guns, open to learning, could certainly benefit from that and see how the organization operates. Absolutely. That yes, I'm glad you brought up the the range day. So, traditionally, we've had a, a media range day, and we've also had a legislative or staffer range day. Um, that hasn't been uh, taken advantage of. You know, it's really it's really tough to get legislators that aren't local. You know, so now we've turned our focus to you know let's go to the range once we go back home, <clears throat> and we'll do it in our home state. But we really do want to offer and encourage uh, any of our legislators to meet us back home and go to the range. But we keep the media separate from the legislator day just because we understand that there are people out there that may not want to, you know, they don't want to be under the microscope all the time uh, while they're learning or even have probably some people know that they are learning about it. So that's another couple of things that we offer as well. That's very good. And you guys, uh, with your lobbying days, that's part of a greater flyover you host annually? Uh, well, yeah, we don't use the L word because we're not lobbyists. We kind right, of right. Petitioning. Consider, yeah, 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 we kind of consider ourselves advocates. None of us are paid and we don't yeah. <laughs> we don't have any money yeah. unless, unless uh, some conservative Bloomberg type is listening to us right now. And then, <laughs> uh, we are we're definitely uh, looking to try to raise some money to counter that, you know, mom's demand has a $36 million budget last year. And I think it's up to 60 Ugh. million this year. So oh you can God. imagine the effectiveness that, that they have in reach, uh, by using their, their purse. So we're definitely, we are a 501 C4 organization right now. We do have a 501 C3, uh, partner in realize firearms awareness coalition, so if there's anybody listening that wants to support that effort, you know, we're, we're not only funding, uh, funding our efforts in Washington, D.C., we're funding our efforts in our state and local levels. 
And I would love to pass out those teal educate, not legislate shirts like candy. Uh, and that's what the red shirts do is they pass out their red shirts like candy. And, and uh, all of that takes money. So that is very true. And I think they've caught up with pro-Second Amendment groups in terms of fundraising and certainly exceeded it in recent years because they saw how powerful individuals like you are uh, going to their lawmakers and petitioning them to vote for against bills or just building rapport with them. And now it's just overwhelming. I can't believe how much money they've risen. So it's it's absolutely necessary that groups like yours do get some financial backing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I wanted- how, important, how important is it for uh, a pro to a uh, legislator to have us visit them as well. It's not, you know, and it, so when a anti group comes in and wants to, to throw things around that they know pro to a stories like Nikki Gozier, whose husband was murdered in a gun free zone right in front of her by her stalker mm-hmm. uh, that um, Melissa Schuster, she was, you know, in a home invasion stabbed and raped and left for dead. I mean, those those story we have emotional stories uh, as well of people who were denied a chance to protect themselves and, or who have defended themselves successfully with firearms and that's the that's the truth and that's the power in truth is that we that, that the firearms industry isn't capitalizing on this that that we the gun the guns save lives exponentially more than guns illegally take life so yeah that's uh it's important for those pro 2a people to to know that that we give them a backbone we give them something to stand on when somebody comes in and says you know if it would just save one life well now he has a story of of nikki or melissa or anybody else who was victimized in a gun-free zone uh you know having those stories in their back pocket helps them stand up uh, for what's right yeah, it's the power of the story or power of emotion. And they certainly like our opponents like to exploit emotion. And they forget that there's another coin to the emotional argument, too, one that doesn't get played or advertised very often. And I think it could be equally convincing. I've noticed in my reporting work, anytime you feature those stories, people always say, I had no idea that happened or I never hear of this. Right. And it's so much dereliction of responsibility in terms of reporting uh, when people fail to gloss over or fail uh, fail to uh, highlight those stories, I should say. Right. And uh, yeah, speaking of women, I mean, there's a huge conversation in the industry at large and I think you certainly have some thoughts on this on why we see such a surge in women picking up firearms. Why do you think that ha- has been happening over the course of a few years that momentum has kind of been building up? And now you see different companies and manufacturers. Talk, yes, we have women shooters. A lot of people are talking about women's initiatives and clubs and organizations like yours. But why do you think so many more women are gravitating towards either Second Amendment advocacy and or uh, gun ownership? Well, it's funny because I don't know that I have a, a good answer, but uh, one of our one of our little hashtags is gun rights are women's rights. And, you know, my entire life I've been told uh, that I have can do anything I want to do. I can do anything that a man can do. I can you know, whatever it is, um, I I have the capabilities to pursue that. 
so there is a there is a notion of feminism that is it's kind of an oxymoron that all the feminists, the true hardcore leftist feminists, think that guns are bad. But I think that it's that sense of womanism and feminism in a positive way that lets women know that, um, you know, I don't have to rely on a man to be my hero. I can be my own hero. Um, I can protect myself. And so I just think that there's a lot of women who realize that uh, they're worth protecting and that they can protect themselves. So they're exploring other avenues besides mace and um, just getting beat up or killed. Uh, that there's another avenue and guns provide another platform in which to consider. That is certainly being proven true, especially in wake of this COVID-19 crisis. We see so many people purchasing firearms. I've never seen anything like this. And a lot of the reporting that has been coming out of it has said, like, in Virginia, a lot of records have been broken in different states nationally. Uh, why do you think that so many people are purchasing firearms in wake of this pandemic? Well, I think it took uh, a real disaster, a real uh, something real in their lives to explain to them that the government is not going to be there to protect you, that you are your own first responder. And it, it, it woke a lot of people up of uh, how am I going to protect myself? Uh, we have lived in such a bubble and such a uh, spoiled state for so long in America that it's really easy to disregard people uh, in the firearms community to say, hey, they're, you know, um, you, you should protect yourself. Uh, and I think this the pandemic uh, really pulled the carpet out from uh, under a lot of people and made them realize that uh, they don't live in a bubble, that they are susceptible to uh, violence or crime or not being able to eat or being taken advantage of. Uh, so I think it just really opened the eyes of a lot of people. And uh, we have been trying to do our best to reach out to those people who are first-time gun owners to welcome them in uh, and make sure that they know how to be safe because that's what the firearms community stands on is safety. Uh, I just did a video in response to Alyssa Milano begging people not to go out and stockpile firearms. I was like, would you stop giving firearms-related advice? You are neither an expert in firearms nor violence. So just, just sit down. Just sit down and be quiet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she likes to opine a lot and uh, doesn't really put out anything, I would say, that is uh... – Practical. <laughs> Practical and mom's demand. Have yeah. you seen the, um, they have a new campaign called Be Smart. Have you seen it? I haven't seen it yet. No, explain, explain to our listeners well, what that I is. I just saw a video and uh, it's very, very sneaky. It's very, it, it, it actually has like truth bits in it. Uh, they talk about safety and they talk about um, how to be responsible firearms owners. So it's kind of like they're giving you good, solid information, but then they also mix it in with uh, their jacked up stats and how guns are bad. And, and, you know, it's a negative, it's an, it's just very sneaky and very good PR work messaging on their part of making them appear like they don't want to disarm America, which is what I believe they want to do. Oh, they're pretty deceptive when it comes to what they're displaying out there. And uh, it's funny that uh, they like to tout a certain financial donor's money, but then 
they don't like to tell <laughs> Bloomberg. And then, they turn around, and then they turn around and condemn, you know, the NRA for being a big bad lobby. And I was like, right. you just admitted that you bought the Virginia election. How, yeah. and then you want to, you want to talk about it, the hypocrisy is so thick that you could cut it with a fork. Right, but, but but they are creatively decepting, pe- deceiving people, excuse me, uh, with their kind of nascent platitudes. And a lot of people are believing that they're gun like they're the voice of female right. gun owners. And I haven't really seen evidence pointing to that because in the past, a lot of the times they've brought in instructors and people have posted pictures from their trainings that they're holding guns improperly. They're pointing them in unsafe directions and positions. And I'm like, Oh gosh, there's so many little tactical errors on their end. And they're claiming that they speak for all women. And it's right. good that it's like yours exists to kind of counterbalance that. But no, people do need to be aware of that. They are being so successful and the momentum is on their side, but not everything is absolute. <laughs> right. And uh, cer- things can certainly change when people start to get the right information in their in their reach. So what groups have been largely in support of DC Project? Where have you gotten a lot of support uh, for your efforts? Well, um, support for our effort. Uh, if you mean financially, we really don't get support um, from any particular group. Um, we have, I mean, the women have gone to Washington, D.C. on their own dime and on their own time for the past four years. Last year, we did raise enough money to, I covered their hotel expenses. Uh, but the trip to D.C. is where we, you know, that's a that's a piece of the money that we would need. But that's not what we, you know, we really want to, like I said, pass out those teal shirts like candy uh, and do a bunch of other uh, campaign oriented, very strategic uh, type campaigns like you see from the opposite side. But uh, but I'll tell you, the NRA women has been extremely great, gracious with, uh, you know, their support of us just by mentioning us. Um, gun owners of America has been good to us. Uh, there's a, there, Dick Heller has been, you know, just individuals. We've had a lot of really, uh, good support, uh, from, from our entire industry. Um, but on the flip side, I feel like our industry, uh, you know, there's a few companies out there that get it and that are really pouring heart and soul and money into, into the second amendment fight, but, uh, boy, it seems like there's a lot of them that aren't getting it. So, uh, you know, if anybody is hearing this that's from a company, uh, know that the, that the anti, anti-gun and anti-rights people are pouring money into this. If you just look at what they did for the WHO, uh, Lady Gaga, I think, raised $35 million in seven days for the WHO after the Trump administration said that they were cutting off funds to them. I mean, whatever it is, they just give out money like it's grown on trees. And you don't see that from the conservative side. And, and you know, uh, if people don't uh, don't know it, mom's demand is coming after moms and students demand is coming after the younger demographic. They're pushing the voting voter registration. So it's really, you know, especially like Virginia, you saw it happen in Virginia and we haven't proven that yet. But I think a lot of Virginians woke up uh, and um, hopefully they'll, that'll correct itself in the future. But uh I hope the rest of the country understands that what happened to Virginia can happen anywhere. Absolutely. And that they have to, and that they have to uh, support it financially, support it with their time and their talent. 
Uh, they're going to have to get involved, whether it be state, local, or federal level politics. Uh, you're going to have to get people registered to vote. Wherever you see antis pushing, we have to uh, match them uh, step for step. There's no more being complacent and thinking that we're the big kids on the block and that we outnumber them. And uh, I feel like we've been kind of on our heels and that we've been basking in our glory for a little bit too long and we've become complacent. So that's kind of why we're in the position that we are. Uh, right now. Those are very sober thoughts. And I agree because a lot of people have become very complacent thinking we're going to enjoy this. There's no interruption. And then lo and behold, you see this counter effort and you're like, where did this come from? But they are quietly organizing. It is very true on all fronts um, with respect to that. I wanted to ask you if anyone is listening and they're interested in learning how to shoot, how to advocate for Second Amendment issues, what tips would you have for them? Well, that's two different things. Um, shooting and the fundamentals, I would encourage, <coughs> oh, I'm sorry. I would encourage people to uh, join a club if you're a woman and you specifically want women to look to clubs like a girl and a gun or the well-armed woman in your local area. Um, I, I love, I love competing. So there's also USPSA, United States Practical Shooting Association that has matches, um, you kind of need to know what you're doing, but you can go out and volunteer uh, and learn the game and learn what you might want to buy. And people will be happy to let you borrow their stuff until you figure it out. Uh, so there's competition. There's um, more social kind of club groups that you can put on your skill set. When it comes to um, becoming, you know, when it comes to becoming a Second Amendment or any kind of advocate, you, you just have to do it. Uh, it's amazing to me, um, me personally, I didn't think that I could make a difference. I didn't know when I started the DC project that it would, you know, I just, I just felt like, and every time I go to DC, I feel like I'm very small. Um, but I feel like I have to do something. So we also do the hashtag doing something in response to all the anti cries of to Congress is you have to do something. And my response to that when I testified is that we are doing something. The firearms industry is doing something. So we use hashtag doing something all the time, talking about how we are providing education and safety at the same time. So Very the good. project, mm -hmm. I would say, um, let me get a plug in for the DC project. Yes, yeah. please, please. Yeah. DCproject.info uh, is, is our website and we have a join tab. Uh, you can either, uh, you know, sign up to volunteer and get into the state group, <clears throat> which is very green, very young. So be very patient with us as we learn how to navigate and manage a bigger number of people. Uh, but they also, if you just want to know who your legislators are, um, there's also links there to everyone from the White House all the way down to your local level, your mayors and things like that. You just put in your address and it'll tell you exactly who your legislators are. And it's even it's even kind of funny because um, even my state directors who have been going with me to D.C. for four years and they understand the, the, the federal level. OK, that everybody has two senators. Every state has two senators and one representative specifically where they live. But then when you go down to the state level, it gets a little murky. 
Uh, they call themselves something different. You know, Virginia calls them delegates. In Oklahoma, we have representatives and senators, but there's more. There's not just one or two senators per state. There's it's more like a representative. So, and there's different districts. So, definitely explore that website. Definitely. Um, find out who your state legislators are versus your federal legislators. So there's a little bit of education. I just had a conversation with one of my state directors and she's like, I'm confused. I can't imagine how, you know, somebody just coming into this space wouldn't be confused. And I was like, I know we've got a lot of work to do. Yeah, I will encourage my listeners to support you guys, whether morally by getting involved or by chipping in. I think you guys do invaluable work and it's so needed and you're giving a voice to a lot of women who feel that they're voiceless and that want to have a say and really educate people about firearms usage. Is there anything else you want to plug in Diana for Um, listeners? Yeah, I would encourage, um, I would encourage your listeners to also check out on our website, dcproject.info forward slash shop. You know, the teal color that I'm talking about, we have a T-shirt on there that's teal, and it's that Educate Over Legislate uh, T-shirt that's got some ARs on it. So it's a really good talking point, and it's something that they can wear that um, they can go out and uh, be nice when you're wearing it, okay? (laughs) (laughs) Don't get in fights. (laughs) (laughs) No, they're really nice shirts. I loved seeing all of you wear it last year, and uh, it kind of showed unity. It was really nice, pleasant color, and really is nice. I should probably get one at some point. Oh, I would, I would get you one. Um, also, uh, I don't know, how much time do we have left? Oh, however much longer you want to dispense. Well, you mentioned, you know, what else do you, I think your audience need to know? And I feel like one of the major, major sneaky things that we don't even know about right now is this corporate activism. Um, last fall, I also went to the New York Times deal book and it's a one day conference and I was invited as a pro second amendment for a breakout session. So just imagine there's several hundred people in front of a stage, but they had two breakout sessions. One was on guns and corporate activism. The other was on China. And so for an hour and a half, I step out of the main, uh, the main deal book sessions and I go into a, um, there was 12 of us. So there was about, there were several anti-gun people, a couple of fathers from uh, Parkland. And uh, then there were several CEOs or executives from companies like Levi's to Royal Caribbean, Citibank. And the discussion was basically about how they're going to use shareholder resolutions to shape how much do they want to, well, the, the question from the New York Times was how much are corporations willing to do social justice through corporate resolutions um, or corporate activism? And I was, I mean, we were, Chris Chang was there with me. And he's great. He was, Chris. He's awesome. He's great. And uh, I feel like we did okay, but we were definitely uh, speaking to uh, deaf ears and that they, they were all lockstep and that they were willing to lose money to do what they felt was morally superior. And um, so basically what happens in these corporate, these shareholder resolutions is that people can buy into these companies. And if you hit a certain percentage of shareholderism, 
you can offer a resolution. And let's say, for example, I don't know if this is what happened with NRA and Yeti, but I can certainly envision it. Um, let's say that the shareholder from Yeti goes to the board meeting and says, I want uh, Yeti to stop, you know, to take a stand against gun violence. And I see that you're partnered with the NRA. If you don't, if you don't sever your relationships with the NRA, I, we will launch a PR nightmare campaign against this company, uh, almost blackmailing and, um, using, using that board to shape public policy and totally usurping any kind of constitutional, um, you know, electing people who needs to elect people when, you choke out the firearms industry from the corporate side. So I feel, I feel like that's something that our our side doesn't even see that's coming. When I was studying that to go to there, uh, I was talking to a guy who does it on the conservative side, and he said that uh, the 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 liberal side will do that uh, like 200 times a year. They'll use corporate resolutions to uh, shape policy. And he said conservatives are doing it 20 to 40 times a year. So you can see how, you know, how sneaky and how backdoorish that is uh, and how elitism and uh, all, it's almost like an oligarchy. So that's just something that I, is on my heart to put out to our community is that we need to be paying attention to that and consider those measures as well. You know, if uh, there's anybody, if our Bloombergs are out there and, and they, they play in the stock market, that they should consider and doing some corporate resolution work. Yeah, people forget that uh, corporate influence could actually be just as dangerous, if not more dangerous, than government power. Um, Yeah, when they use the purse strings of corporate board meetings and shareholder relations to do that. And that's something I've explored a little bit, but I need to inform myself more on it uh, because that's certainly a battle all of us need to be aware of. Right. Very intriguing. But yeah, no, no. I'm glad you brought that up. That's very important to to do. But uh, social media links where people can connect with you and DC Project. Sure. On Facebook, uh, I'm Diana Muller Three Gun, and on Instagram, I'm Die Three Gun. D I the number three and gun. And then uh, the DC Project is also on Facebook as at the DC Project, and then on Instagram, it's DC underscore Project Foundation. Wonderful. Diana, I am so grateful that you took time to chat with me, to share what's going on with DC Project, share your perspective, what you ladies are up to. I support what you guys have undertaken. And if there's any way that I could be in support further of the group, I will certainly do that. And I'll be sure to share with everyone beyond even the podcast too, to, to go towards your direction and support you guys. So thank you again I, for coming on. I appreciate it. And uh, we'll get you one of those teal shirts and uh yeah just pimp out teal for 2a perfect i love it thank you again (laughs) take care all right bye-bye bye-bye if you enjoyed our discussion with diana moeller please be sure to follow us on your preferred podcasting platform if you listen to apple podcasts we ask you to subscribe download some past episodes and leave us some reviews more activity the podcast has, the higher the ranks, especially the wilderness charts that we can climb. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to never miss a beat, to learn who our upcoming guests are, or just to check out past episodes of the podcast. 
Thank you for listening to District of Conservation, and we'll talk to you guys next week.